Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. Elon Musk talking about production hell and him camping out on the production floor. We're going to see a lot of that before we're truly in 50 gigawatts of domestic manufacturing. If developers and projects are needing those modules, it's going to be a painful process. There's a press release almost every week. Increasing demand for solar modules paired with supply chain constraints and trade disputes have some new players eyeing the U.S. market. Some module manufacturers are building new factories to capitalize on new federal incentives to boost the domestic solar supply chain. Others are hoping to import their products into the U.S. Both have created a set of new, largely unknown players for buyers to make sense of. And standard certifications don't go far enough to determine a module's long-term performance and reliability. I'm John Ingle, Content Director for Renewable Energy World. This week on Factor This, I'm joined by Tristan Irian Larico, Vice President of Sales and Marketing for PV Evolution Labs, or PVEL, as they're known in the industry. The firm helps manufacturers prove themselves to new markets and offers investors and asset owners an extra level of certainty over long-term performance. Do you know what's in your module? That's all next on Factor This from Renewable Energy World. Tristan Erian Larico, welcome to the Factor This podcast. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. And you are, you know, all of our guests say that they listen to the show and they like the show, but I think you are actually a true true blue listener to this podcast. Yeah. So this is this will be fun. Yeah, I was gonna say first time. First time interviewee, long time listener. So yeah, look, looking forward to it. Uh, I've, I've learned a lot from from this show. I'm a big podcast junkie. And, uh, you know, you starting with the Oxing case, that just piqued my interest. And I've listened ever since. So cool. Excited to be on. Yeah, well, we're going to get to a lot of that in this conversation. But first, just to um, introduce you to folks listening to this show. You are the Vice President of Sales and Marketing at PV Evolution Labs, better known within the industry as PVEL. And listeners to this podcast will know that we don't typically allow the sales and marketing and business development folks like yourself into this medium only because we try to stay away from that you know, commercial pitch. But you do have a technical background and you have worked in various stages across the solar PV supply chain for more than a decade. So we will make the exception for, for this episode. Um, with that, will you tell us a little bit about your background and, and the role that PVEL plays in the industry? Yeah. So um, first of all, thank you for making that exception. I'll try to keep the pitches to uh, <laughs> keep the pitches to a minimum. Uh, I don't love the the sales and marketing title for that exact reason, because I am a module geek and I, I do like to geek out. And we'll we'll keep this conversation more on the the, the nerd side of things than the Perfect. trying to sell you anything. Um, so I've been in the solar industry since 2011. Uh, which I guess makes me a, a veteran. And I, I started at uh, Silfab Solar, which is a module manufacturer in the Toronto area where I'm still based. And I was there for you know five years and then worked at a couple different developers looking after procurement as well as operations and maintenance at for commercial and rooftop commercial and industrial sorry rooftops 
in uh, a bunch of different countries and then, you know, had a good relationship with the folks at Pivel while working at Silfab and then also had a good relationship with them helping me with procurement and, you know, the, the opening to work there came up and they reached out to me and it seemed like a great fit. So I've been at Pivel um, ever since that's about five years ago and, you know, still enjoying the mission that, that we're on to basically improve quality in the industry. So go into that a little bit more, what does Pivel do and how do you ensure that the you know, we preserve quality. Yeah. So in, in 2012, PVEL started the product qualification program or PQP, as it's known in the industry. And that's really looking at reliability and performance testing going beyond certification of PV modules. And, you know, eventually we got into inverters and energy storage. We, we aren't as focused on that anymore, but still very focused on our, our mission on, on modules. So module manufacturers sign up for the PQP and downstream buyers use that data to help them make, you know, empirical data-backed decisions on which modules to use. Um, it started because, you know, our, our founders realized that modules are not commodities. They were seeing in their own procurement that even though the data sheets looked similar and, you know, they had similar warranties and power classes, et cetera, the, the performance and the reliability performance could change drastically from, you know, manufacturer to manufacturer or model to model or even bill of material combinations to each other and realized, you know, we, we've got a, a service we can provide to the industry and that's how we started and, and that's what we've been focused on ever since. And, you know, I, I think in this conversation, we'll, we'll see that that mission is still as important as it always was. Totally. So what goes into PQP testing then? Can you, can you take us into that process a little bit? So the PQP was, is really focused on testing beyond certification. Um, certification sets the minimum bar for selling your products in the industry. And that's, you know, UL and IEC certification, which your, your listeners are probably familiar with. That's answering the question of, you know, are there any early design faults for, that lead to early lifetime failures that we want to weed out of the industry? But certification is not answering the question of, is this a good 25-year investment to put on your residential rooftop in a commercial and industrial project or out in a field for a utility scale project? And PVEL is addressing that gap by saying, you know, is this bill of material combination, this module type, et cetera, is this a good investment for your project? What percentage of the market, if you're able to say, incorporates P PQP testing? Is it is it a large swath? Yeah. So talking to, you know, one of the biggest uh, module manufacturers in the industry a couple of years ago, they told me that for their utility scale projects, 90% of them required PQP testing for sales into the U.S., so it's become, you know, a, a baseline requirement for the U.S. industry. It's not as popular abroad. It's kind of a nice to have in Europe and in other jurisdictions. But basically, you know, if you want to sell your modules into the U.S. beyond, you know, you can probably sell as a module manufacturer 50, maybe 100 megawatts a year into the U.S. without PQP. But if you want to start moving, you know, real volumes and getting into the gigawatt scale or even hundreds of megawatts, you're going to run up to, 
you know, PVAL PQP requirements constantly. And, and that's how we've gotten to, you know, the, the majority of, of big projects do require PQP testing. So when you say require, are you talking about the, is it the investor, the developer, the EPC, the asset owner, who is, who is setting that requirement? On the procurement side, yeah, I think a lot of the times it's the tax equity investor and probably the the, the debt investors, long term debt holders, okay. uh, and they push that to the developers and the IEs representing the tax equity and the debt. You know, it's in the IEs requirements; it's something they want to see to sign off on the project, and that trickles down to the developers, and it's probably not even much of a trickle. <laughs> That's really forced down onto the developers. And the developers realize when they're talking to module manufacturers, I, I need this. This is one of the requirements for my project. I'm, there's dozens of requirements, of course, but for the modules, you know, my bank is going to ask me and my investors are going to ask me for this. So I need to ask you, you know, module salesperson, do you have this or, or not? And if you don't have it, that's going to make... Uh, lives more difficult when it comes to financial close for the developers. So that's how it's become, you know, a de facto requirement for for the US market. Okay, got it. So this is a continuation of a conversation we've been having, as you alluded to, since the start of this podcast on supply chain constraints. Um, for those of you who are not aware and are new here, we did launch with a four-part series on the Oxen Solar Tariff Petition, which Tristan mentioned, and that included an interview with Oxen Solar's CEO, Mamoun Rashid, in the first episode. Definitely recommend you check that out. And episode 29 was with uh, market analyst Paula Mintz, where we really tried to focus on this evolving module market and uh, the impact of UFLPA enforcement, which has, as you know, tied up you know, gigawatts of modules linked to forced labor in China. And now we have this transition to American manufacturing that's taking place as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act. So that's bringing in um, foreign and, and brand new players to the market. So can you help, uh, you know, with all that being said, can you characterize the state of the solar PV module market on the supply side as we've, you know, really shifted around over this last year, year and a half? Uh, well, in very few words, a, a total mess. <laughs> is, that, is that a sufficient uh, description? Yeah, yeah. I mean, supply side, manufacturers are, are worried about getting their modules through through U.S. customs, um, you know, tracing back to the quartz site on, on the raw materials as part of the UFLPA, you know, has, has been very difficult. Um, that it, it just wasn't established yet that that supply chain and, you know, manufacturers getting large, call it hundreds of megawatts in some cases of modules stopped at the border, you know, was was very difficult and, you know, has just created havoc across the board. Um, so to to react to that, some of these uh, module purchasers are looking at new suppliers and you know we're we're working with those new suppliers in order to get them vetted for selling large volumes into the US. Can you go into some of those relationships that you have because I think, you know, at le least on the developer side, those listening to this this episode may be uh, recalling these press releases that we've had over the last few months and and really everything since the Inflation Reduction Act, these names that keep popping up um, of having these, you know, massive manufacturing announcements in the US of, you know, gigawatt um manufacturing capacity and you look at the name and you go who 
um, you know, no one no one's heard of the player or they're they're operating in other markets. So um, who, what are some of those names that are start, starting to pop up and who are you working with to to help them enter the market? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we can go through a, a number of examples there. Um, you know, one one of them that came out with a jaw dropping press release uh, last month or maybe two months ago was American Hyperion slash uh, also known as Runnergy is the parent company. Uh, they had a recent announcement of a 1.65 gigawatt supply contract into the U.S. market. And I, I know PQP testing is part of the requirements that enabled them to, to break in through the, the, into the U.S. Uh, industry. And, you know, probably very few um, downstream companies have heard of American Hyperion and, you know, that's that's one example. They're doing production in, in Southeast Asia. And, you know, the scale mm-hmm. is just massive. Like I, I've, I was in the industry where module manufacturers, if they had an order of 16.5 megawatts, it would be worth, you know, a press release. And now for a newcomer to get 1.65 gigawatts, two orders of magnitude higher, it's it's incredible. Um, beyond Hyperion, we're also working to vet other call it up and coming module suppliers that have historically not exported to the to the US market. Um, there's a few more out of Southeast Asia, Dehoi, um, Solar Space, NE Solar. Uh, they're all they're all new to PVAL testing. Um, and there's there's a lot of focus from Indian manufacturers, you know, after hearing the success stories of Wari being able to sell hundreds of megawatts into single projects. Um, a lot of Indian manufacturers are interested in in selling here as well. We've got MV, Goldie, Premier. Uh, they're all signed up for, for PVAL PQP testing to access this market. Um, and then Meyer Burgers, another one out of Germany. Uh, they were an equipment manufacturer and they decided um, a few years ago to pivot to, instead of selling equipment to module manufacturers, keeping that IP in-house and selling the modules themselves. And, you know, they're building a factory in Arizona. But in the meantime, they're also importing modules from their factory in Europe. And they're also using PQP to to help gain market share. So, um, you know, that's a short list. And and there's there's lots of other manufacturers that are familiar with uh, or would be familiar to your your listeners um, you know, the, the Jinkos, the Trinas, mm-hmm. et cetera, the V-Suns, Boviets. Um, if you look, we haven't mentioned it yet, but each year PVEL puts out our PV module reliability scorecard. And those, those brands I just mentioned are featured in there. You know, they've, they've had relationships with us for quite some time. Um, so we're, we're testing all of them so that there's a range of products and manufacturers being offered into the market and to help with with all of this demand and these supply constraints. Well, and to speak to that demand too, some of these new, you know, these market entrants on the manufacturing side are coming in not only with these really lofty um, production goals of you know like one point six five gigawatts, but they're coming in with supply agreements already with with some developers, right? Like on the demand side, there's there's just so much demand for the domestically manufactured content that. I'm sure, you know, our, our asset owners and everyone involved in procurement are just circling around these new players. 
Hey, Factor This listeners, it's John Ingle. I wanted to let you know that you can now watch every new episode of the Factor This podcast on YouTube. Just search Renewable Energy World and leave a rating and review while you're there. Thanks for listening. Yeah, well, and that's on the, you mentioned on the domestic demand, like we we haven't even gotten into that really yet. Um, we're, you know, all the manufacturers I just mentioned, they're all looking to import. Um, and mm-hmm. and although some of them are are talking about factories, and as I mentioned, Meyer Burger, they're, they're actually right. building one. Um, you know, there's, there's still a lot of demand before these factories are up and running and actually delivering significant supply of U.S. made modules. And, you know, it's going to take a good year or more to, to get, you know, gigawatt scale of new production coming out of the U.S. So in the meantime, there's lots of projects to be built in 2023, 2024, and they all need modules and and modules that can get through customs and, you know, be installed onto projects. And and that's kind of the the immediate focus right now is is that glut of demand for imported imported modules. Yeah. So just out of curiosity too, for the for those manufacturers that are entering the market that fail the PVAL PQP testing, what, well, what what happens after that? Like, does that does that data get shared at all with the industry, or that does that basically just disqualify them from operating in this market? You know, the oddly enough, the PQP. Well, maybe it's not that odd, but the PQP doesn't have firm pass fail requirements. It's really okay. up to the module manufacturer and their client to decide what is acceptable. So, you know, we, we haven't talked about the tests that are included in the PQP, but for let's take Damp Heat 2000, and that's 2000 hours at 85 degrees Celsius and 85% relative humidity. So extremely hot and extremely humid. And, you know, we've, we've seen modules that don't do as well as they probably should in that test. But if you're selling those modules into a desert environment, Maybe you don't care so much that they they don't do well in humidity because they're not going to be exposed to high humidity. Um, so maybe the developer there or the investors can allow a, a higher degradation rate than they normally would for a project, let's say, in Florida. Um, so, you know, we're not saying you you can't sell this module into the U.S. We're saying here's the data and, you know, we can help you interpret what it means, but we're, we're not telling you uh, pass or fail. Um, so, you know, that, that's one side. The other side is that, uh, we we get an, a number of module manufacturers that submit multiple bills of material combinations. So using different cells or different encapsulants and different back sheets, et cetera. And, you know, maybe we uncover that there's a issue with one of the bills of material combination, but the other ones perform quite well. And we've seen that throughout our history that, uh, you know, the results are really specific to the components that were put into that module. And so in those cases, the manufacturer might say, okay, I'm not going to ship, you know, bomb three that was tested, uh, bomb one and bomb two did much better. And those are the ones I'm going to use for this order or for this customer, what, what have you. Um, so, you know, there's, there are some manufacturers that just submit one bill of material, and that is a little bit risky. Others will submit, you know, multiples so they have some 
some choices. And also, um, when they have supply constraints on their end, maybe they can't get that encapsulant anymore or or the, those cells, et cetera. They have some um, variability to to source different materials for their modules. This is a bit of a tangent, but I do think it's interesting that, um, you know, I would assume your value proposition just from PVEL's perspective is improving too, as the, you know, the threat of climate change continues to worsen. And we talk about the resiliency of these assets too. You mentioned those hot temperatures and, and very cold temperatures and in, increased humidity like this, this becomes a, a kind of a climate play too, right? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that as, as the industry has grown now, modules are going into places where they would never go in the past. So, you know, look at, look at Texas and, um, the extreme weather that happens there, we we added a hail test a couple of years ago because projects in Texas were getting destroyed by hail, and and the downstream wanted to understand if modules could perform better in extreme hail testing than than other options. Um, but yeah, it it is getting increasingly more difficult to predict. You know, where is this test important? Okay, this this area doesn't have extreme hail, so maybe you don't have to care about it. But is it going to get extreme hail in the next 25 years? You know, those historical uh, weather maps are becoming less and less valid On, on the climate change side, too. You know, one one other plug just for avoiding extreme climate change is that the reliability of the module, you know, the more reliable a module is, the the lower ecological footprint it has, so to speak. So, you know, we want as many modules installed as possible, and we want them to last as long as possible. We don't want to be replacing modules in 15, 20, 25 years with new modules because those ones were were unreliable that are being installed now. You know, in 15, 20, 25 years, the new modules that go in should be offsetting coal and, and other you know, greenhouse gassing, greenhouse gas producing technologies, not modules that failed. So, you know, the more reliable a module, the more environmental it is. And that's part of our mission, too. You know, we, we want to see as, as many modules as possible last as long as possible. Yeah, I appreciate that. So uh, back to, you know, the, the conversation that we were having, which which markets are these new entrants on the manufacturing side primarily coming from just based on you know who you're working with and what you're seeing? Yeah, well, you know, most manufacturing into the US is still coming from in, in terms of imports from Southeast Asia. I think uh, as part of one of our recent reports that we can talk about later, um, I think we said that 70 or 80 percent of of modules come from Southeast Asia, which was, you know, the big impact of these uh, the the anti circumvention slash, aka oxen uh, tariff case, um, and you know so we're seeing a lot of a lot of demand for our testing from those regions. As I mentioned earlier, you know India is has dozens of module manufacturers, many of whom are focused primarily on the domestic market in India, but now they're increasingly looking at exporting into the U.S. Um, and Turkey is also, you know, in, in a similar case, lots of manufacturers there. I think there's over 10 module manufacturers in Turkey, again, focused on the domestic market, but increasingly wanting to export into the U.S. Um, and then, you know, there's domestic 
manufacturers in in the U.S. as well as in Canada, um, etc. So that's that's kind of the the global map. And I think as more manufacturers show up in Europe, we'll we'll be working with with more of them as well. We've got a couple, but um, that will be increasing as well. You've touched on it a couple of times. Um, maybe this is the opportunity to dive into that report a little bit more, the market report that you've worked on. What what are some of the highlights from that that you think um, would be helpful for our audience? Yeah, so, well, there's there's a couple different reports. The one I mentioned was the module reliability scorecard. Uh, that's the one we release every May. Um, so the, the version that came out in 2022, you know, it, it had highlights on how are the test results um, evolving over time, we did see that uh, generally the results are getting better, although there are some outliers that, that we highlighted. Um, the report I was just referring to, um, in, in a partnership with a company in the UK called Exawatt, we do a solar technology and cost forecast report where we're looking at how is module technology evolving in the next over the next three years, and how are, how's that going to impact cost over the next three years? So that's a quarterly subscriber paid for report um, that that we put out. The module scorecard is free for everyone. You can you can download it or you know go to the the microsite, and I'd love to provide you that link for the show notes. Um, but basically, you know that lists who's doing well in PVAL testing. Um, the data is is owned by the module manufacturers that sign up for our testing. So if they don't do well, you know, we don't put their names in and, you know, the, the, the results are anonymized for the, the companies that don't do well, the companies that do do well, they want to be in the scorecard and use it as like a badge of honor for their reliability. Right. So they're named and that's a free report for everyone. Um, and then the, the solar technology and cost report is, you know, behind a paywall. Um, and and we've got uh, a number of subscribers that use that to try to understand where the market is headed. Well, and you wouldn't be coming on this podcast if you weren't willing to at least sprinkle some of those insights uh, into this episode. So um, <laughs> what what are we seeing in the, um, the, the evolution of technology that you can kind of maybe give a, a peek into where that transition is heading for for our listeners. Happy to talk about that. Um, I think most listeners who are procuring modules are familiar with PERC cells. Um, you know, we could get into these acronyms and what they all mean, but let's not go too deep into let's the go with, Yeah, Let's go with the understanding that, that uh, this audience knows what yeah, PERC cells yeah. are. So we'll, yeah. we'll keep with PERC and that's a P-type technology. Um, and, and people procuring modules have probably familiarized themselves with uh, the, the switch that's happening to N-type. And um, that is through basically a bifurcation of kind of two cell technologies. There's TopCon or heterojunction, also known as HJT. And that's really where the, the market is headed. I think, um, you know, as we were talking, the U.S., U.S. is not buying modules from China for various tariff-related reasons. A lot of these Chinese manufacturers have already switched their lines over to either TopCon or HJT in China. Changing them over in Southeast Asia is going to take, take some time. And so the U.S. market kind of lags on the technology front by, by a year or two versus what's available uh, coming out of China. 
but we're going to see that that transition to Topcon and HJT happening, you know, in the coming, say, year or two for the U.S. market. So why is that shift happening and, and what are some of the benefits? Why is it happening is the increased uh, efficiency of these new cell types coming in into modules and and perk had kind of reached the, the maximum efficiency, more or less. And, you know, the industry's hungry for higher powered modules. And and so, you know, things are evolving to, to the next phase. Um, so, you know, the, the benefits are that you can install uh, less modules and get the same amount of power or install the same amount of modules and, and get more power, which is attractive for, for everyone in the industry. Obviously, that will lead to or should lead to lower um, LCOE. And and that's what we all want. Yeah. Who are some of the players that are, are making that switch? Is it, you know, the, the big names that everyone would be familiar with? Yeah, I think if you look at the, you know, the product announcements, you'll see Topcon modules coming out of Jinko and Trina and JA Solar. In terms of Topcon for the U.S., that Runergy project the 1.65 gigawatts, you know, I believe it's all TopCon. The testing we're doing for them is is TopCon. Um, so, you know, we're, we're still seeing a, a lot of PERC. Uh, one thing to mention is that PERC cells are are available for the merchant suppliers of, of cells. So a lot of module manufacturers that don't have um, cell manufacturing integrated, right. they need to buy PERC because buying Topcon cells are, are not as available as Perk cells. Whereas if you look at the incumbents that have cell manufacturing and module manufacturing, they're switching over to Topcon and using their own cells in their Topcon modules. On the on the heterojunction or HJT side, you know, Meyer Berger is is a leader in that technology. They were the ones, you know, selling, as I said earlier, um, HJT production lines and then realize, no, we're going to keep this in-house and use our technology advantage to sell modules instead of selling module manufacturing lines. Um, and there's other companies focused on HJT. Um, REC is is one of them. And uh, we're working with other manufacturers in, in China that have, you know, utility scale, like 700 watt modules that are our heterojunction. So what are some of the, the bigger risks then facing developers and, and asset owners on the procurement end when it comes to this changing supply of, of PV modules in the market? Yeah, so I think what we've seen at, at PVEL over our, our existence is that it takes a few years for module designs to get stable um, in terms of their long-term test results. So uh, we always see that there's some new market entrants that do it well and some market entrants that that have some room to improve. And over time, as there's more market entrants and the technology improves, the results get better and better until, you know, they're stable. There's a very small range of of results and they're all basically doing doing things properly. Um and that's great. And then, you know, we could take a step back and say, hey, PVEL's mission is completed. We've <laughs> we've confirmed that all modules are reliable and let's let's step away. Um, what happens, though, is 
someone throws a wrench into that and says, oh, we're going to switch cell technology or we're going to go, you know, historically from uh, three or four or five bus bar modules to nine, 10, 11, 12. That caused havoc in how the cells could be soldered. And some knew what they were doing. Some manufacturers didn't know what they were doing. And we saw a range of results. Then over time, everyone kind of figured out how to solder these reliably. Uh, so we're seeing the same thing with Topcon and HJT technologies. You know, some manufacturers, we prove that what they claim, you know, this technology is better and you will only get positive uh, benefits from this. And for others, we find eh, you got you got to learn a thing or two. So I think those are the the risks that continue for Topcon and HJT. We could probably get into the technology specific risks, but just generally speaking, you know, these are more delicate cell technologies and there's, there's more layers involved in both of them. And if those layers um, suffer from corrosion or from other, you know, degradation mechanisms, they break down and, and you can get higher degradation than, than what you expect. So it also means that the production window of these technologies is, is much tighter. So as equipment improves, you can, you can produce modules with the required reliability, but it's going to take some time to, to vet these, these technologies and make sure that what's being sold is, is performing as expected. Well, and you've already kind of answered this question, but maybe leave us with your bold prediction for this this market as it develops over the next um, few years. And not only response to the Inflation Reduction Act, but also the, you know, the shifting balance of power in, in China and Southeast Asia and how those manufacturers will settle out due to, you know, this changing tariff environment. Is there one thing that that maybe you don't share with every client, but you feel like is the direction we're heading uh, well, I would say my bold prediction, not to upset anyone here, but, um, you know, we, we, we're seeing in our solar technology and cost uh, report that I think in 2027, there's going to be over 50 gigawatts of uh, module, domestic module production. And, you know, don't quote me on that number. I don't have the report in front of me, but I think that's the, a good range of what to expect. And, you know, that's a lot. That's a lot of modules being produced stateside. And that requires a lot of labor and a lot of skilled labor. And, you know, if if module manufacturers are saying, OK, I'm, I'm opening up a two gigawatt factory and I'm starting to take orders for 2024 and I'm going to, you know, offer up to two gigawatts of orders, that factory might only per be producing 500 megawatts or one gigawatt. In 2024, it's it's going to take them a while to get trained staff and be able to run at full capacity, and I think that's going to lead to you know a lot of orders not being fulfilled and and some painful times to ramp up this domestic production, and you know that's kind of my my bold prediction is everyone wants manufacturing in the U.S., but it's you know we've seen. Kind of time and again, it takes longer to get uh, these factories online and being able to produce defect-free modules. And I think we're going to see, you know, in some cases, more uh, third-party inspections having to to happen in these these factories than we see overseas, 
while we go through that production pain. You know, if if you recall, to use the analogy, Elon Musk talking about production hell as he was getting Tesla factories up and running and him, I think, camping out on the production floor. We're going to see a lot of that before we're truly in, you know, 50 gigawatts of, of domestic manufacturing. And, you know, if, if developers and projects are needing those modules, it, it's going to be a painful process. And, you know, I, I, I'm confident the industry is going to get there. It's just going to probably take longer than than what the module manufacturers are forecasting and what orders they're taking in. So that's that's my bold prediction. And um, I think something that's not getting as much attention while everyone's excited about this new domestic uh, supply. It's just it's going to take a while and and developers need to have uh, alternatives while they're waiting for those factories to be fully utilized. So the mess that you started us off with that you referred to when I asked you about the state of the market, that's not cleaning up anytime soon. Yeah. And maybe never. Uh, you know, there's what an optimistic, <laughs> what an optimistic tone to send us out with. Well, I, I've been in this industry and I, I'm sure lots of your listeners have have been in this industry long enough to realize, you know, it always keeps us on our toes. And there's something to be said about the, the people in this industry and their dedication to the mission at large that, that we put up with this. And we kind of love it. You know, maybe we're all gluttons for punishment. Um, but, you know, once something gets figured out, there will be a new something to to get sorted. And that's what we're here for. And, man, you got to love it. Tristan, Arian, Lorico, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks again. It, w- it was a real pleasure. Thanks again to Tristan, Erian, Larico for joining the podcast. Factor This is a production of Renewable Energy World and Clarion Energy. Join us every Monday as we break down solar's most important topics with industry leaders who actually move the needle. And please leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Factor This from Renewable Energy World. Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the Interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.